Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll talk with eminent Florida historian Michael Gannon about Catholicism and Spanish imperialism in Florida and their lasting impact today. Everywhere uh, Spain moved politically and economically and militarily, the church moved too. Remembering cattle as road hazards prior to Florida's fence laws in the 1940s, and the story of Virgil Hawkins and his long fight for educational equality. The degree of resistance to desegregation in Florida was epitomized, I think, by the Virgil Hawkins case. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In 1565, when Spanish settlers in St. Augustine became the first Europeans to establish a permanent colony in North America, they brought with them their religious beliefs. Missionaries accompanied the Spanish explorers to La Florida to teach Catholicism to the indigenous people here. Michael Gannon is Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Florida and is author or editor of nine books, including The New History of Florida. One of the most respected historians in Florida, Michael Gannon has received many awards, including the inaugural Florida Literature Lifetime Achievement Award in March 2010. In 1965, as St. Augustine was celebrating the 400th anniversary of its founding, Michael Gannon was a priest there, overseeing the expansion and redecorating of the Cathedral Church and the erection of the Great Cross. There were a number of individual and institutional contributions to the 400th anniversary. And then there was a citywide coordinating committee that oversaw a lot of other activity collectively. As far as the Catholic Church is concerned, there were two major products of our efforts. I say I being a priest historian with the Diocese of St. Augustine at the time. First at the old mission uh, where the first parish mass was celebrated on September 8, 1565. It was decided to build a cross 
because that was central to the original ceremony where Father Francisco Lopez, the fleet chaplain, soon to be first pastor of the first parish, came ashore ahead of Pedro Menendez Aviles, the leader of the founding expedition, and um, then went forward to meet Menendez holding a cross. And Menendez came on land, knelt, and kissed the cross. And so uh, Archbishop Joseph P. Hurley of the Diocese of St. Augustine thought it best to highlight the church's contribution by the erection of a very large cross. And ultimately, it was constructed of stainless steel and rose to a height of 208 feet. I think it is still the tallest freestanding cross in the Western Hemisphere. And I think it's very impressive. It, uh, it's stately. It has a wonderful design that was done by an architectural firm in Boston, Massachusetts. It um, can be seen 14 miles out to sea, and it's grown among and upon uh, the people who live in this community and has become a symbol of the first mission to the North American natives and the first parish erected by Europeans in this country. Also part of St. Augustine's 400th anniversary was the construction of a contemporary church called the Prince of Peace and a bridge linking the church with the historic mission grounds. Plans were made for a library and research center on the property, but funding was not available. Today, visitors to the mission site can also see the statue of Father Francisco Lopez. That statue was erected in the 1950s. It was executed by a distinguished Yugoslav sculpture, sculptor, Ivan Mestrovich, but it was placed uh, in a copse of trees where it did not stand out against a dark background. And um, the plan that the architects in 1965 came forward with was to move it to a site on open ground where the figure of Father Lopez with his arms in the air would stand out against the sky. And now, at long last, this calendar year, uh, and last, because the work began then, the statue has been moved to that space, and you can see the dramatic difference in uh, the figure of Father Lopez as he's seen completely and clearly now against uh, the sky, and directly in front of the cross which stands behind him. As the Spanish began exploring and colonizing Florida, the Reformation movement was underway in Europe, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Henry VIII, and other Reformation leaders were protesting various practices of the Catholic Church and forming Protestant religions. In an effort to maintain its power and influence, the Catholic Church launched the Counter-Reformation. Part of that effort was to send Catholic missionaries around the world, including the New World of Florida. Michael Gannon explains that Spanish imperialism and Catholicism were inextricably linked. The two efforts were coterminous. Uh, Everywhere uh, Spain moved politically and economically and militarily, the church moved too. Uh, The church was always a a partner of Spanish expansion. And indeed, some of the great expansion of the church through her mission system uh, preceded the advance of other elements of Spanish society. And uh, you can certainly see that in the interior missions of Florida during the 17th century where... um, Missions stood out in the wilderness, uh, apart from 
all of the other examples of Spanish colonial existence and the friars of the Franciscan order lived very lonely lives servicing their people. So the church was in the forefront. If, uh, if, if, if you want to uh, uh, select any part of the Spanish cultural presence in Florida and the rest of the Spanish provinces of North America, you would have to say the, the church was in advance of all other institutions. St. Augustine is the site of the first Christian church in what would become the United States. As Michael Gannon points out, St. Augustine is also the site of our country's first school, first hospital, first court of law, first market, and first city plan. As the Franciscan missionaries tried to convert the Tamuquan Indians who inhabited the region, they discovered that the natives had no written language. A friar named Francisco Pereja developed a phonetic written version of the Tamuquan language, preserving it for us today. Although the Tamuquan people no longer exist, Michael Gannon brings their language to life by reciting the first sentences of the Lord's Prayer. Heka itamile numa hiban tema bisa milanema abak wano leta habema balunu nanemima noho boni habe. A bronze plaque at the mission site in St. Augustine shows the locations of dozens of missions scattered throughout Florida and the southeastern portion of North America. The attempts to convert Florida's indigenous peoples met with varied results. The natives were both welcoming and hostile, depending on the tribe. Uh, when the first missionary to attempt a pacifist approach to the natives he being uh, a Dominican friar who landed at Tampa Bay, uh, the Indians were extremely hostile. They killed him at once. And prior to that, when a number of Franciscan friars and secular priests came with the second expedition of Juan Ponce de Leon to Florida in 1521 on the lower Gulf Coast, they were attacked by the Calusa natives of the site and driven back into the sea. Uh, so it depends. Uh, uh, in uh, most other particulars, uh, the, the native peoples were welcoming, particularly in northern Florida. And that's where the Franciscans had their great successes when they came here in, beginning in 1573 and built missions up the Atlantic coast as far as the border between Georgia and South Carolina. And in the early 17th century, they moved westward across the peninsula and were generally welcome wherever they went and created their greatest number of missions up around the Appalachian country uh, centered on present-day Tallahassee. Those natives had been very hostile to earlier Spanish expeditions in the first half uh, of the 16th century. But in the mission century, they were very accommodating and welcoming to the Franciscan friars. So it, it depends. On, on balance, uh, the natives welcomed uh, the Christian religion and its principal exponents, the Franciscans. The native populations were not the only people who the Spanish missionaries tried to influence. As the British began establishing colonies to the north, the Spanish in Florida tried to encourage runaway slaves to embrace Christianity. Michael Gannon. First of all, during the Spanish period, when a large number of African slaves in 1740 and afterwards escaped from British plantations in the Carolinas, 
passed through Georgia and down to St. Augustine, where they were given their freedom and where Christianity was preached to them and where they were baptized and began to live normal Christian lives alongside their Spanish and Indian uh, cousins. This was the first Underground Railroad as these African Americans, as you can call them by that date, sought freedom and did so by going to the protection of the Spanish flag and the Christian church. Generally, the slaves from the British plantations were never given the opportunity to learn the Christian religion because it taught the, it taught the dignity of the individual person. And that's something the slave owners didn't want the slaves to learn about. As St. Augustine prepared for their 400th anniversary celebration, the Florida Chamber of Commerce asked Michael Gannon to talk with President John F. Kennedy about the historic importance of the event. When President Kennedy came to Tampa in mid-November of 1963, Gannon had a meeting with him. It was hoped by the Chamber of Commerce and by the city fathers in St. Augustine that the president would agree to come down earlier rather than later. It was uncertain if he would be elected to a second term, so they wanted him to come while president and to build up interest in the city that would help generate tourist traffic for the 400th year. And so it was arranged for me to meet with the president at MacDill Air Force Base Officers Club, and I did so. Uh, present were the president and myself, together with the White House photographer, a photographer from the Tampa Tribune, and a Secret Service agent named Gerald Blaine. And the president and I met for 15 minutes or so. I brought him a photographic copy of the oldest written record of American origin, which was a parish register of a matrimonial uh, sacrament, the um, marriage between two Spaniards, a man and a woman, here in the city of St. Augustine, dated in 1594. And uh, he seemed to be very grateful to receive the gift of a photographic copy that was beautifully framed by Victor Rayner, a uh, photographer here in uh, St. Augustine. Well, uh, as he left, uh, he said to me, uh, what is your name again? I told him my name, and he said, I'll keep in touch. But four days later, he was dead. We can still see the legacy of Spanish colonization and Catholicism in Florida today. Michael Gannon and other Florida historians share information about our state's Spanish colonial period at summer workshops for teachers held in St. Augustine. Well, we see uh, the legacy in the living mission and in the living parish, which uh, uh, date from uh, the founding year of 1565. Uh, we see it also in the foundations of old mission churches in, throughout Florida. Uh, foundations that have been excavated by archaeologists over the last 40 years. Increasingly, uh, not only scholars, but the general public in Florida has become acquainted with the great story of Spain's contributions to our religious and cultural life in those early centuries of European presence. And uh, there's a growing number of teachers in our school systems, many of which have come to classes in St. Augustine during the summertime taught by professors from Florida State University and the University of Florida um, who have gone back to their schools and told their students about uh, the great unknown story 
of early Florida under Spanish tutelage. And I think, yes, uh, uh, a growing understanding is there. And uh, the more teachers we uh, provide uh, the, the tools with which to work, uh, the more that understanding will spread. Michael Gannon is Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can order great books about Florida, view historic photos, check our calendar of events, and much more. You can also listen to archived editions of Florida Frontiers and click the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. In addition to producing this program, the Florida Historical Society does a lot of great work. Check us out at myfloridahistory.org. Desperado, why don't you come to Senses, you've been out riding fences for so long now. Before Florida's fence laws went into effect in the 1940s, stray cattle were sometimes struck by motorists. As Janie Gould reports, road trips in the 1940s were also slowed by a lack of highways. Until Florida's turnpike and interstate highways were built, road trips up and down the peninsula could be painfully long. In 1947, Victor Gacy was a University of Florida freshman from Miami. I could have gone to the University of Miami, which was only five minutes away, but I decided on Gainesville. I had an old beat-up car the first trip I made, and it took us a day and a half to get there. US-1 was two-lane. We had to go through every little town on the East Coast, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm, Stewart. I can remember going along the Indian River in the fall, the sulfur smell was predominant. You said you were in a beat-up car. What kind of car? It was a Hudson Terraplane, 1937 vintage. In Gainesville, I think I sold that car for 50 bucks, and I got $10 down and never saw the fellow that bought it. He and the car were both long gone. Thank goodness. It was about to fall apart. What kind of speed were you able to go? Probably between 35 and 40 miles an hour. So Miami to Gainesville, it was about a 300-mile trip? 365 miles. To be exact. Yeah. In uh, probably October, we had a hurricane which closed down 441 and 27 around the lake. Then we only could use US-1. Did you ever have car trouble with that old car? Well, I didn't use that car much after the first Christmas. There were other people in my group that had cars. On occasion, we'd hitchhike which was safe in those days. One trip stands out in my mind. We got a ride in the laundry truck around West Palm. 
for about 30 miles. So that was pretty comfortable. You got to lie down among the sheets and towels? The dirty laundry. At least it was wheels, right? It helped to get us home. Did you ever see many policemen or highway patrol officers at that time on long road trips in Florida? That I don't recall. I remember there was a fence law to keep the cattle off the road. It had just been put into law. In 1942, I think. So we didn't have that to worry about. You never hit a cow on the road, but you had a fraternity brother who did something like that. He was a fellow from Orlando coming back Sunday night to Gainesville. He hit a cow or a deer. It peeled the hood of the car right back like a sardine can and peeled off the roof. The car was full of blood. The bystanders thought the person was injured badly, but it turned out he walked away from the car. It was blood from the cow. What highway was this on? That would have been 441. Back before the fence law was in full effect, I guess. Well, there were probably a lot of territory that wasn't fenced in that should have been. The law took hold gradually, I suppose, in Florida. Cattlemen really opposed it. Definitely. They liked to roam their herds, and uh, they were limited to their own property. The cows would eat the grass, especially the good grass. They wouldn't have much else to work. In the old days, they could roam the prairie and be well-fed. And also, you could walk them to market, so to speak. Those days came to an end, and the cows had to stay home on their own pastures. That's correct. It was a lot safer, because I'm sure many other accidents had happened prior to the fence law. I don't have any idea how expensive fencing was in those days. It was probably a good bit. Gacy was out of college, and his work in Citrus took him all over the state when the Turnpike opened in 1957. It was really a godsend. You could then go 50 miles an hour or so. It made life a lot easier. Made getting there a lot quicker, too. Yeah, and more time to go to the beach. Victor Gacy lives in Vero Beach. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Many older Floridians still remember segregation in America, a time when Florida and the South were subject to a rigid code of apartheid enforced by a white ruling establishment. The story of Virgil Hawkins is one of extraordinary determination. Hawkins made history in the fight for educational equality in Florida. Bill Dudley has more. The degree of resistance to desegregation in Florida was epitomized, I think, by the Virgil Hawkins case. The man was shabbily mistreated. Former St. Petersburg Times political columnist Martin Dykeman. Born in 1907, Virgil Darnell Hawkins was the son of a preacher in central Florida's Lake County. As a young boy, he decided to someday become a lawyer to help fight racial injustice. When he saw a group of black men, probably in chains, sentenced to serve terms in the county jail for minor gambling offenses, and the purpose of sending them to the county jail was that so the sheriff could make money leasing them out for day labor. In 1949, Hawkins and four other blacks sued in the Florida Supreme Court after being denied admission to the University of Florida. A year later, the court told Hawkins he could seek a law degree out of state or wait for a new law program to be set up for blacks only at Florida A&M. 
Hawkins then took his appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, but was turned away on a technicality. After Florida's court refused him again in 1952, the U.S. court finally ruled that Hawkins and others like him should be admitted. Florida denied the ruling, and again Hawkins sought justice before the U.S. Supreme Court, which in March 1956 directly ordered him admitted to the university. But the Florida court again defied the order. The Supreme Court of Florida probably defied the United States Supreme Court to a greater extent than any other state court in the country during that period. Constance Baker Motley, who was one of Virgil Hawkins's attorneys and later became a federal district judge herself, said that it was in Florida, not Virginia, where they first encountered what she described as massive resistance. Massive resistance was, of course, a political code word for saying we'll never, we'll never desegregate. But they first encountered it in Florida when the entire machinery of the state seemed devoted to keeping Virgil Hawkins out of the University of Florida Law School. Hawkins returned to Washington a fourth time. This time, the Supreme Court sent him to a federal district judge, another segregationist, who delayed things another year. Meanwhile, state authorities raised the entrance requirements to make Hawkins ineligible to attend the law school. In June 1958, nine years after he began the fight, Virgil Hawkins made a deal. He would withdraw his application if other qualified blacks would be allowed to enter. Three months later, the University of Florida enrolled its first black student. Hawkins, now 51 years old and still pursuing his dream, headed north. He went to New England and studied law there. And then, in a particularly bitter catch-22, was not allowed to take the Florida bar exam because the law school he attended was not accredited at the time he got his degree from it. It was subsequently accredited as a law school, but he was then barred from taking the bar exam, even though he had gotten a degree saying he was a lawyer. But even this was not the final outrage. In 1974, the Florida court ordered a white man, the brother of a former attorney general, admitted to the state bar, in spite of never having passed the exam. But now there was a black justice on the court, Joseph Hatchett, who cited the earlier actions of the state's court toward Hawkins as lawlessness on the part of men sworn to uphold the law. Joseph Hatchett said, this is not fair. You've let a white man practice law without passing the exam. Why don't you do the same for this black man? And then in this draft dissent, Justice Hatchett began to list all the illegal things the Florida Supreme Court had done, all the acts of defiance to the U.S. Supreme Court. Embarrassed, the court finally allowed Virgil Hawkins admission to the Florida bar. The year was 1976. He set up a sole practice in the Lake County town of Leesburg. But now in his 70s, and with no one to mentor him in his new career, Hawkins got into trouble. He worked long hours, often for free, often in spite of ill health. Though well-intentioned, he made several serious ethical mistakes, was put on professional probation, and finally gave up his practice. Three years later, in 1988, he suffered a stroke and died. Soon after, a North Florida attorney, Harley Herman, petitioned the Florida Bar to posthumously reinstate Hawkins. A year later, Governor Bob Martinez signed a bill naming the university's legal clinics after Hawkins. And in 2001, the University of Florida awarded its first posthumous honorary degree to Virgil Hawkins. The presenter was historian David Colburn, then university provost. The fight over Hawkins' admission was not just a fight over desegregating a particular law school, but it was a fight over changing a way of life. The persistence of Florida... The dogmatism of Florida reflected its commitment 
to the racial values of the past. This particular Florida history was typical of the, what we would today regard as irrational objection of white Florida to admitting any black person to their sacred preserves. And surely the University of Florida and its law school were two of their most sacred preserves. The Hawkins case was really a monumental case in the legal history of segregation in higher education in America. The fact that it took nine years to work its way through the courts, going back and forth between the U.S. Supreme Court and the Florida Supreme Court, and that Hawkins subsequently would withdraw his case, is really a remarkable story of both human perseverance and of human sacrifice for the well-being of both African-American peoples, but also the United States. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Markle.